Chapter Ten of the Andes and the Amazon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Andes and the Amazon by James Orton. Chapter Ten. The Valley of Quito, Riobamba, a bed of fossil giants, Chio Hacienda, Otovalo and Ibarra. The Great Earthquake of 1868 The valley of Quito has about the same size and shape as the basin of Salt Lake, but it is five thousand feet higher. The two cordilleras enclosing it are tied by the mountain knots of Asue and Chisinchi, so that the valley is subdivided into three basins, those of Cuenca, Ambato, and Quito proper, which increase in beauty and altitude as we travel north. There are several subordinate transversal dikes and some longitudinal ridges, but all the basins lie parallel to the axes of the cordilleras, a characteristic feature of the Andes. The deep valleys on the outside flanks are evidently valleys of erosion, but the basins between the cordilleras were created with them. The first is fifty miles long. It contains the cities of Loja and Cuenca, the former distinguished for its cinchona forests, the latter for Inca graves and mines of precious metals. The middle basin, 130 miles in length, is covered with vast quantities of volcanic debris, the outpourings of Cotopaxi, Tunguragua, and Altar on one side, and of Chimborazo and Caraguirazo on the other. Nothing relieves the barrenness of landscape but hedges of century plant, cactus, and wild heliotrope which border the roads. Whirlwinds of sand are often seen moving over the plain. The mean temperature is 61.5 degrees. Here exist, we cannot say thrive, the cities of Riobamba, Ambato, and Tacunga, already noticed. Riobamba, properly Riobamba, the Plain of Lightning, was founded at the beginning of this century, or shortly after the destruction of the old city. Excepting the ecclesiastical buildings, the houses are of one story, built of stone plastered with mud, sometimes of adobe or bamboo and the windows are grated like those of a prison. As in all Spanish-American towns, the main church fronts the great plaza where the weekly fairs are held. Save on fair day, the city is lifeless. Nothing is exported to the coast except a few eggs and fowls, lard and potatoes. Such is the power of habit. An Indian will take a hen to bodegas and sell it for four reals, fifty cents, when he could get three for it in Riobamba, and six on the road. Another instance of this dogged adherence to custom was related to us by Dr. Taylor. The Indians were accustomed to bring the curate of a certain village a bundle of alfalfa every day. A new curate, having no use for so much, ordered them not to bring any more. He was besieged by five hundred of his wild parishioners, and had he not been a powerful man they would have killed him. They told him they were accustomed to bring the curate that much of alfalfa and should continue. Old Riobamba Cajabamba is situated twelve miles to the west. This has been the scene of some of the most terrible paroxysms that overshook the Andes. In 1797 a part of Mount Sicalfa was thrown down, crushing the city at its foot. Hills arose where valleys existed, rivers disappeared and others took their places, and the very site of the city was rent asunder. The surviving inhabitants could not tell where their houses had stood, and property was so mingled that litigation followed the earthquake. 
Judging from the numerous sculptured columns lying broken and prostrate throughout the valley, the city must have had a magnificence now unknown in Ecuador. Around a coat of arms, evidently Spanish, we read these words, Malo mori quam fedari, I would rather die than be disgraced. In the spring of 1868 another convulsion caused a lake to disappear and a mountain to take its place. Near Punin, seven miles southwest of Riobamba, we discovered in a deep ravine numerous fossil bones, belonging chiefly to the mastodon, and extinct species of the horse, deer, and llama. They were embedded in the middle of an unstratified cliff, four hundred feet high, of very compact silt, or trachytic clay, free from stones and resting on a hard quartzose sandstone. In the bed of the stream which runs through the ravine, charged with nitrate of soda, are some igneous rocks. The bones were drifted to this spot and deposited, many of them in a broken state, in horizontal layers along with recent shells. We have, then, this remarkable fact, that this high valley was tenanted by elephantine quadrupeds, all of which passed away before the arrival of the human species, and yet, while the land and probably the sea also, were peopled with their present molluscan inhabitants. This confirms the statement of Mr. Lyell, that the longevity of mammalian species is much inferior to that of the testacea. It is interesting to speculate on the probable climate and the character of the vegetation in this high valley, when these extinct mammifers lived. The great pachyderm would have no difficulty in thriving at the present day at Quito, on the score of temperature or altitude. The mammoth once flourished in Siberia, and Gibbon met an elephant on the high tablelands of Bolivia that had walked over the Cordillera at the pass of Antarangua, sixteen thousand feet above the sea. Darwin thinks that the climate of the Cordilleras has changed since the Pleistocene period. It is a marvelous fact in the history of Mammalia, says this naturalist, that in South America a native horse should have lived and disappeared, to be succeeded in after-ages by the countless herds descended from the few introduced with the Spanish colonists. The high ridge of Chisinchi, stretching across the great plateau from Cotopaxi to Iliniza, separates the evergreen valley of Quito from the arid and melancholy valleys of Cuenca and Ambato. It rolls out like a rich carpet of emerald verdure between the towering mountains of Pichincha and Antisana, Cotocachi and Cayambi. This was the center of the most ancient native civilization after that of Titicaca. Here, while the darkness of the Middle Ages was settling over Europe, dwelt the Quitus, whose origin is lost in the mists of fable. Then, while Peter the Hermit was leading his fanatic host against the Saracens, the Cara nation waged a more successful crusade and supplanted the Quitus. Here, too, in the bloody days of Pizarro, reigned and was buried the last of the Incas, ill-fated Atahualpa. To him, indeed, it was a more delightful spot than the Vale of Vilcamayu, the paradise of Peru. The Puengazi hills, running through the valley from north to south, partially defied the capital and its vicinity from the charming valley of Chio, spread out at the foot of Antisana. Here is the venerable hacienda of Chio, where Humboldt and Bonplan resided for some time. It is owned by the Aguirres, who are grand-nephews of Don Carlos Montufar, the companion of the famous travellers. The hacienda contains two valuable paintings, an original crucifixion by Titian, and a portrait of the great German from life as he appeared in 1803. This latter relic interested us exceedingly, and through the kindness of Señor Aguirre we were allowed to photograph it. 
It represents Humboldt in his prime, a traveller on the Andes, dressed after the court fashion of Berlin, very different from the usual portrait, an old man in his library, his head thinly covered with grey hair, resting on his bosom. Thirty miles north of Quito, near the volcanic Imbabura, is the ruined city of Otovalo, a thousand feet lower than the capital. It was well built and contained seven thousand inhabitants. Quichua was the prevailing language. Its chief trade was in saddles, ponchos, straw hats, and fruit. Here was the cotton factory, or quinta, of Señor Pareja. Three miles from Otovalo was the enterprising Indian village of Cotocachi, at the mountain of the same name. It was noted for its hand-loom products. A heap of ruins now marks the locality. It is a doomed spot, suffering more than any other town in 1859. Four miles northwest of Otovalo was the city of Ibarra, picturesquely seated on a plain two thousand feet lower than Quito, and surrounded with orchards and gardens. It numbered nearly ten thousand souls. It was not a commercial place, but the residence of landed proprietors. The neighborhood produced cotton, sugar, and fruit. A league distant was Caranqui, the birthplace of Atahualpa. And finally, the great valley fitly terminates in the plain of Atuntaki, where the decisive battle was fought which ushered in the reign of the Incas. This northern province of Imbabura was the focus of the late terrible earthquake. At half-past one on Sunday morning, August sixteenth, 1868, with scarcely a premonitory sign save a slight trembling at 3 p.m. the previous day, there was an upheaving of the ground, and then one tremendous shock and rocking of the earth, lasting one minute. In that brief moment the rich and flourishing province became a wilderness, and misericordia went up like the sound of many waters from ten villages and cities. Otovalo, Ibarra, Cotocachi, and Atantaki are heaps of ruins. At Otovalo six thousand perished. After the first shock not a wall a yard high remained. Houses in some instances seem to have been cut from their foundation and thrown ten feet distant. The large stone fountain in the plaza was thrown many yards. The cotton factory, which was built on the edge of a ravine, was by one stroke reduced to fragments. Such was the force of the concussion. The looms smashed each other, the carding machines were thrown on their sides, and the roof with part of the machinery was found in the river below. The proprietor was killed. Throughout this whole region roads were broken up, and vast chasms created crossing the country in all directions. One is two thousand yards long, five hundred yards broad, and eighty yards deep. Large fissures were opened on the sides of Cotocachi and Imbabura, from which issued immense torrents of water, mud, and bituminous substances, carrying away and drowning hundreds of cattle. A caravan of mules going to Chio with cotton bales was found four days after, grazing on a narrow strip of land on each side of which was a fearful chasm, while the muleteers were killed. At Quito, comparatively little damage was done. Fifteen lives were lost, and the churches, convents, and many private houses are in a state of dilapidation. Domes and arches, which are much used because of the scarcity of timber, were first to fall. In the fierceness of the shock and the extent of the territory shaken, the earthquake of August 1868 is without a parallel in the New World. The destruction of life, fifty thousand officially reported in Ecuador alone, has not been equalled in any other earthquake during this century. The tremor was felt over four republics, and from the Andes to the Sandwich Islands. The water wave was felt on the coast of New Zealand sixteen hours after it had set a United States gunboat on the sand hills of Arica. 
In some respects it is surpassed only by the Lisbon earthquake, which reached from Sweden to the West Indies, and from Barbary to Scotland. The loss of property seems to have been greatest in Peru, and the loss of life greatest in Ecuador. The commotion seemed to be most violent among the Western Cordillera, though it was felt even on the Napo. There are few places where the crust of our planet is long at rest. Brazil, Egypt, Russia, and Greenland are comparatively free from earthquakes. But had we delicate instruments scattered throughout the world, upheaval and subsidence would doubtless be detected in every part of the so-called terra firma. The sea, and not the land, is the true image of stability. Time writes no wrinkle on thy azure brow, such as creation's dawn beheld, thou rollest now. Earthquakes have occurred in every period of geological history, and are independent of latitude. The first well-known earthquake came in the year 63, and shattered Pompeii and Herculaneum sixteen years before they were overwhelmed by the first recorded eruption of Vesuvius. The most celebrated earthquake, and perhaps the most terrible manifestation of force during the human period, was in 1755. The shock, which seemed to originate in the bed of the Atlantic, pervaded one-twelfth of the earth's surface. Unhappy Lisbon stood in its path. An earthquake is a vertical vibration, having an undulatory progression. An example of the simple bounding movement occurred in 1797, when the city of Riobamba in the Quito Valley was buried under part of a mountain, shaken down by the violent concussion, and men were tossed several hundred feet. We saw one massive structure which had nearly turned a somersault. The ordinary vibrations seldom exceed two feet in height. The wave movement has a rate of from twenty to thirty miles a minute, depending on the elasticity of the rock and the elevations on the surface. When two undulations cross each other, a rotatory or twisting motion is produced. The waves are generally transmitted along the lines of primary mountain chains, which are doubtless seated on a fracture. The Lisbon waves moved from southwest to northeast, or parallel to the mountain system of the Old World. Those of the United States, in 1843, ran parallel to the volcanic chain in Mexico. In South America they roll along the Andes. That of 1797 left its track along a westerly line from Tunguragua through Pelileo and Guano. It is a little singular that while the late trembling at Quito seemed to come from the north, the great shock in Peru preceded that in Ecuador by three days. Though the origin of the earthquakes is deep-seated, the oscillation is mostly superficial, as deep mines are little disturbed. The most damage is done where the sedimentary plains abut against the hard, upturned strata of the mountains. The shock is usually brief. That of Caracas lasted fifty seconds, that of Lisbon six minutes, but Humboldt witnessed one in South America which continued a quarter of an hour. Several hypotheses have been advanced to account for earthquakes. Rogers ascribes them to billowy pulsations in the molten matter upon which the flexible crust of the earth floats. Mallet thinks they may be viewed as an uncompleted effort to establish a volcano. Dana holds that they are occasioned by the folding up of the rocks in the slow process of cooling and consequent contraction of the earth's crust. In this process there would occur enormous fractures to relieve the tension. Tilted strata would slip and caverns give way. All this no doubt takes place. But the sudden paroxysmal heavings incline us to refer the cause to the same eruptive impulse which makes Vesuvius and Cotopaxi discharge pent-up subterranean vapor and gas. The most destructive earthquakes occur when the overlying rocks do not break and give vent to the imprisoned gas. There is some connection between volcanoes and earthquakes. The former are, to a certain extent, safety valves. 
the column of smoke from the volcano of Pasto suddenly disappeared just before the great earthquake at Riobamba. In the spring of 1868, Pichincha and Cotopaxi showed signs of increasing activity, but in the summer became quiet again. Cotocachi and Sangai, two hundred miles apart, were awaked simultaneously. The former, silent for centuries, sent forth dense masses of earth and volcanic matter to a distance of many miles, covering thousands of acres. The latter thundered every half-hour instead of hourly, as before. Still, the greatest earthquakes do not occur in the vicinity of active volcanoes. Lisbon and Lima, where, on an average, forty-five shocks occur annually, and two fearful ones in a century, are far distant from any volcanic vent. Likewise, northern India, South Africa, Scotland, and the United States. An earthquake is beyond the reach of calculation. Professor Perry of Dijon, France, is endeavoring to prove that there is a periodicity in earthquakes, synchronous with that in the tides of the ocean, the greatest number occurring at the time of new and full moon. If this theory be sustained, we must admit the existence of a vast subterranean sea of lava. But all this is problematical. Earthquakes appear independently of the geology of a country, though the rate of undulation is modified by the mineral structure. Earthquake waves seem to move more rapidly through the comparatively undisturbed beds of the Mississippi Valley than through the contorted strata of Europe. Meteorology is unable to indicate a coming earthquake, for there is no sure prophecy in sultry weather, sirocco wind, and leaden sky. The Lisbon shock came without a warning. Sudden changes of the weather, however, often occur after an earthquake. Since the great convulsion of 1797, the climate of the valley of Quito is said to be much colder. A heavy rain often follows a violent earthquake in Peru. No amount of familiarity with earthquakes enables one to laugh during the shock, or even at the subterranean thunders which sound like the clanking of chains in the realm of Pluto. All animated nature is terror-stricken. The horse trembles in his stall, the cow moans a low, melancholy tune, the dog sends forth an unearthly yell, sparrows drop from the trees as if dead, crocodiles leave the trembling bed of the river and run with loud cries into the forest, and man himself becomes bewildered and loses all capacity. When the earth rocks beneath our feet, the motion resembling, in the words of Darwin, that felt by a person skating over thin ice which bends under the weight of his body, something besides giddiness is produced. We feel our utter insignificance in the presence of a mysterious power that shakes the Andes like a reed. But more, there is an awful sensation of insecurity. A moment, says Humboldt, destroys the illusion of a whole life. Our deceptive faith in the repose of nature vanishes, and we feel transported, as it were, into a region of unknown destructive forces. A judgment day seems impending, and each moment is an age when one stands on a world convulsed. End of chapter 10